This is Bill Marshall recording from my book, The Blueprint of Reality. This is chapter 12. I thought I saw a pussycat. Session 14. And here we go. Concentration is not through thought, although we believe it to be. Concentration is where our attention is focused, and attention is not necessarily where we place our thoughts. Our focus of attention, which is our concentration, lies in our beliefs, and it will be our beliefs that are expressed outwardly, for this is the film fed into our projector. If we hold a belief that we can't do something and then find that we don't when we try, then that is where our concentration lies. We might affirm over and over, I can, I can, but we would not need the affirmation if we trusted that we could. Trust is an action, and the action is knowing. The affirmation can act as a lack of trust in our ability to create what we want. We believe, concentrate upon, we can't, and that is what our perception projects outward as a creation, despite thought chattering on like the little choo-choo that could. Thought is fleeting. When we turn our attention to thought, it is limited, momentary, and sporadic. We constantly hold our attention and concentration on beliefs without a thought process being involved. It is this that generates the reality. If we turned our attention to thought every single moment of every single day, we would be paralyzed. It would take a week just to cross the street. Try thinking of each and every muscle movement your body makes as you are walking. The thinking slows you down to a near-dead stop. As we alter our beliefs, or as we alter our attention to our beliefs, rather than to our thoughts by paying attention to what we do, we will be able to alter the entirety of our reality. Since we believe concentration lies in focusing our thinking, we have begun medicating millions of children who allow their real attention free reign. We have given them a label that places them outside the narrow highway called normal. These are the children we refer to as suffering from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Children, and now adults with ADHD, see themselves as impaired because they believe the same faulty definition of thought and attention. They simply pay attention to where their real attention is directed, not where we, as a mass culture, believe it should be directed. They're punished and medicated for it. We are not. Our concentration, the belief that is outwardly expressed, objectifies our subjective states as a physical manifestation. 
by doing affirmations. We are reinforcing our beliefs that we can't create what we want. It is a lack of trust. Once we set a probability in motion, let's say acquiring a new car, our constant turn to our thinking actually acts as a block to the manifestation of the car. The key to getting the car would be trusting that you have already created it. Creation of the future takes place in the now. Patience, which is allowance and not waiting, also plays into the equation. Trust allows an objective knowing that we have already set the probability in motion and that it will be actualized. It also frees our attention to move in other directions. As Elias says, and I quote, the knowing is set. Therefore, it is unnecessary to be objectively concentrating. End quote. Here he means constantly turning our attention to thought regarding the car. Objective concentration is what we currently assign to the tool of thought. But this is a direct expression of a lack of trust in that it is a reinforcement of what we are really concentrating on. Through positive thinking, we reinforce doubt, a lack of knowing that what we want is already inserted as a probability, and the lack of trust in our ability to create what we want. Why would we need to say, I can, I can, I can, if we really trusted that we could. We don't create what we want when our thought processes do not match the underlying concentration through beliefs. The belief is usually a discounting of our ability to create what we want. Concentration and attention are nearly synonymous but our concentration is what belief is expressed, not what we think. What we believe is what projects our energy outward through perception. We will therefore attract that which reinforces our belief, not what we think, unless thought has interpreted correctly. Let's say we want to quit smoking. What we typically do is get the nicotine patch or join a support group because what we believe is that smoking is addictive and that we will need help. What we believe is our reality. This is our concentration and this is what we will create. Difficulty and failure. We hold these beliefs as universal truths otherwise known as facts, and therefore do not accept them as simply our own individual truths. Once we accept our beliefs, their power is lessened and other options open. Maybe the addiction will lessen. Maybe we'll be able to quit with ease. If we continue to feel the strong pull of the addiction, then what we are concentrating on 
is that particular belief that says nicotine is addictive. Continue to accept the belief without the judgment of good and bad. Trust that you are creating a cessation of smoking and you'll see results. Again, concentration is focused on what belief is outwardly expressed, not what we want. The belief is the energy that is projected. New heading, attention and the driving analogy. Attention is not thought, although thought may be involved with attention. We pay attention to our beliefs, which creates what we do. What we do will tell us what beliefs are being expressed. Most of us believe without a doubt that if we take our thinking function out of the mix, that we will drive our car off the road or collide with another car. Concomitantly, we hold great doubt that we can direct our vehicle where we want to go without concentrating on our driving, which we believe we do through thought. Many, if not all of us, have driven our cars where we have no conscious memory of directing it from point A to point B. This more often than not occurs on longer trips where our mind wanders and we can't remember driving the past 10 miles. In this example, we were not paying attention through thought and yet we arrived at our destination without incident. This is allowing ourselves to create what we want without thought, without control, and with complete effortlessness. A new heading, distortion of a want. Sometimes we get in the ballpark but don't get up to bat. This is what happens when thought determines a want without sufficient information. We get what we want, but it is not satisfying. Elias uses the following example to bring home the point. I'm sitting at home watching TV and all of a sudden I have a craving for some ice cream. This is thought identifying a want. I go to the fridge, scoop out a bowl full of my favorite vanilla ice cream, and return to my recliner. As I begin to eat the ice cream, I realize that it is not satisfying, and I set it aside. I clearly identified wanting the ice cream through thought, and now I'm confused. Wanting the ice cream was a distortion on the part of thought and attempting to identify an inward subjective desire, thought must make a translation into the objective outer world. Because I turn my attention immediately to thought and not to my communications, and because I so thoroughly trusted thought, I didn't give thought enough information to translate the inner desire accurately. Once recognizing that I didn't want the ice cream, I wonder what it was I did want. Knowing as I do now that thought is merely a translator, 
and that it misinterpreted my inner desire into a distorted want, I turned my attention to the actual communications. What delivers the communications are my impressions, my senses, both inner and outer, my intuition, and my emotions. The body is also a communicator. The want of the ice cream was a translation by thought in response to a subtle emotion of longing. The feeling of longing is a signal that an emotional communication is present. We are good at quickly identifying the signal, but generally we automatically stop at the signal and we respond immediately to it and not to the communication that the signal is alerting us to. The emotion which carries the communication in this case is never a simple reaction. It communicates precisely what we are doing inwardly in that moment. But if we don't receive the message, we continue the signal and wind up confusing ourselves. It's a little like hearing a knock at the door, but never answering it. In the moment or moments that we rec recognize thought has translated inaccurately, our communication systems move into action. If we pay attention, they actually let us know that thought misunderstood. Our communication may offer another emotion, and in the case of the ice cream, the emotion or signal would then be dissatisfaction. It may present a physical manifestation, maybe a fly alights on our ice cream, or it may produce an impression. If we only pay attention to the signals that our communications produce, to let us know a message is present, then we will continue with our confusion and or disappointment and another signal will arise. New heading, the chooser. Many who have read the Elias material ask what part of us chooses if not thought. The question itself is related to our propensity to separate and compartmentalize. We recognize that thought is an interpretive tool, but if it does not choose, then what part of us does? It is unfamiliar to us because of our understanding of who we are and because our old association with thought and our beliefs about it are so strong. We realize that the chooser is unfamiliar to us and is not associated with those aspects of consciousness we have become accustomed to paying attention to. It is this confusion and unfamiliarity that has generated the age-old question, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I want? And questioning how we create our reality, we begin paying attention to ourselves, not what is outside ourselves. And we begin redefining our terms. 
our associations, and therefore our reality. We choose, but that I is not a conglomeration of parts. We and I is a unity. Although we have grossly altered the definition of thought, we have not altered its true function as a translator. It would be like using a baseball bat for golf. You can hit the little ball with it, although not effectively, and the bat still maintains its primary function of hitting a baseball. It is our definition of thought that has us confused. We choose. Thought does not, but it does influence. The chooser is independent of beliefs and the good-bad judgments we attach to them through thought. The chooser is influenced by our beliefs by way of what experience it creates. Thought is heavily influenced by our beliefs. The chooser is not in terms of good and bad and so creates a choice in alignment with the direction in which our attention is moving. The chooser, what it creates, matters not, because it is not influenced by our beliefs of good and bad. The choice may be comfortable or uncomfortable, for the terms comfortable, uncomfortable, good, bad, right, wrong, are all created in relation to thought, which is influenced by the belief system of duplicity. The chooser operates independent of our beliefs in good and bad, which is why acceptance and paying attention to what we do is so critical. Thought is always subsequent to choice. Our direction of movement has already been engaged. Thought follows action so that it might interpret. We do not stop thinking, although our attention is not always directed to thought. Thought is a natural part of who we are. We do, however, need to understand its natural function. New heading, Acceptance and Allowance. Acceptance and allowance play an important role in our understanding of what we choose, which is what we create. Acceptance and allowance are accomplished through the recognition of what we are doing in the moment and what influences and motivations are in relation to what we do and to what we choose. We recognize that we are doing without judgment. This is the acceptance of what is. Judgments of good are equally as limiting as judgments of bad. Both are part of the belief system of duplicity. Both construct a narrow highway in which we negotiate our world. In fact, judgments of good are often more limiting to choice than are judgments of bad. Judgments of bad often motivate us to seek out other avenues of expression, 
while good locks us into a singular path. When we are choosing good, we are not as motivated to deviate and explore any other path. We will often create a bad to motivate us towards change. Let's say my direction and movement in the moment is toward the development of self-trust. The chooser creates many consecutive moments that move me to a ski slope. I have never skied before. I stand atop the bunny slope and emotion sends me the signal of anxiety. In God One's world, I identify the feeling with fear through the tool of thought that I have misdefined as the chooser. I relate the fear to the unfamiliar action of skiing, which is associated with the belief of control. I believe I will have no control over the skis that I don't know how to operate. I am not offering myself any clarity through thought as to what my choices are because thought has only paid attention to the signal of anxiety and not to the communication the emotion brings. In God Two's world, where the communication is received, thought might translate in this manner. I have many choices in this moment. There is no clear danger as I stand atop this gentle slope. All I am doing in this moment is standing. There is no need to generate anxiety and fear for no threat is presently occurring. I may choose to stand here or move down the hill in trust. I may also choose to take off my skis and tube down the hill. In God One's world, we engage thought prematurely. In God Two's world, we feed it all the information it needs to make an accurate translation. The chooser chooses. It is up to thought to understand. New heading. Know thyself. When Socrates asked the oracle at Delphi the secret of life and was told to know thyself, she wasn't just whistling in the breeze. When Jesus said, the Father and I are one, he was speaking for all of us. When the Buddha said, if you encounter me along your path, kill me, he knew there was no single way. C.G. Young once likened our penchant for norms to viewing a jar of pebbles. We could measure and weigh every pebble in the jar and come up with an average of size and weight for the jar, and yet there might not be a single pebble in the jar that exactly matches that average. Young knew that means and medians and normative data straight jackets the individual. To know thyself is more than knowing we are quick to temper or non-assertive or shy or gregarious or judgmental or any of the other thousands of terms we use to describe ourselves. To know thyself 
is to know that we are powerful beyond measure. To know thyself is to know that we have created God in our own image and that who we are is God too, not God one. The real God is beyond thought, but not beyond us. We can feel these truths in our bones. Elias has given us the blueprint for getting to the bottom of the oracle's advice. We have chosen to awaken to who we are and whether we realize it through thought or not. And the key to it all is acceptance. Acceptance of self is lack of judgment regarding self and others. In every way, I am more than I believe myself to be. I choose to be where I am, and it is neither right nor wrong. It just is. There is nothing I need to be but me. Comparing myself to others is a lack of acceptance of me. I need not concern myself with what others think. I may walk through each day with the understanding that I am a glorious creation and worthy of my own love. And this ends chapter 12. Thanks for listening.